Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal. We're beginning the next section, which is entitled The Streets in Chapter 4. Oh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, in Chapter 4, which is entitled Oaths of Water, our final chapter in this book. Before we begin reading, I would like to ask people to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform you may frequent the most. I would like to remind people we put these episodes out on a daily basis at 8 o'clock a.m. on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Pocket Cast, anywhere that podcasts and audio are available, this podcast series comes out. And previously on Rockford Reading Daily, we began Chapter 4, which was entitled Oaths of Water and was walking us through some of the experiences that occur in the near hinterlands, which is classified as the suburban areas. And we were learning about some of the struggles that were, that took place within Ferguson, Missouri, and why some of those struggles took place in the way that they did. After that, we began reading about Seattle and about the author's experience in Seattle during Occupy Wall Street. And we learned a lot about some of the intricacies of some of the intricacies and politics of organizing, of activism, and of occupations. And I've sort of related that to some of the experience that is experiences that I've had with the occupation at City Hall in Rockford, Illinois that the May 30th Alliance has been a part of. Okay. Let's move on to our next section, the streets. I never understood the need for umbrellas until I went to Hong Kong. There, the rain is torrential. Humid tropical sunlight is cut open by heavy clouds, the edge of the typhoon visible from the distance like a great fissure across the city, severing the sun-glittering skyscrapers of the main island from the clusters of new town public housing built in the jungle near the border. Laika Shing's port, and all the glass buildings sitting on the land he purchased in the wake of the 67 riots are divided from the rooftop shanties and tortuously subdivided closets housing the city's poor. The rain divides the steakhouses from the noodle carrots. Excuse me, the rain divides the steakhouses from the noodle carts, Mandarin from Cantonese, and the streets from the alleys. It's little surprise, then, that the umbrella would soon become the symbol of a crowd capable of traver traversing that divide. Oddly enough, there are no proper football hooligans in the former British colony. When the riots came in late 2014, building after years of soft populist protests led by old, quote, pan-democrats, end quote, they were thus led not by football ultras, but instead by ultras in the lowercase. This took many forms, most of which were apolitical, though they were ultimately utilized as a stepping stone for the far right. Construction workers, skilled in the careful weaving required to build the city's signature bamboo scaffolding used on construction sites, came together to craft intricate meshwork barricades out of the same material, essentially converting a tool of the elite, for whom real estate is a key investment in one of the most expensive cities in the world, into a weapon against the police attempting to protect the very property values that the construction workers had helped to create. In other cases, the forms of affinity were smaller and simpler. Groups of like-minded friends smashed the windows of Parliament. Others built shields emblazoned with images of Guan Yu, 
patron deity of police and gangsters, again inverting the tools of power against his practitioners. But throughout the Umbrella Movement, the Ultras have found themselves in conflict with the large mass of traditional activists advocating peaceful protest, and such tactical advances only occurred at the margins, surrounded by controversy. By 2016, however, these forms of small-scale coordination would become almost second nature as people rapidly mobilized against the crackdown on street hawkers in Mon Kok. Protesters brought shields and goggles, hurled projectiles at police, set fire to trash cans, and built barricades across major thoroughfares. Each of these examples hints at one of the essential characteristics of the ultra that defines them in opposition to the activist. They raise the question of concrete power instead of politics as proper language, proper analysis, or simply the act of being proper and respectable in the face of the police. We therefore come full circle, returning to the oath as the present form of partisanship, its pragmatic focus on the functional abilities of an engaged minority capable of at least temporarily cutting across an otherwise unbridgeable atomization. For these partisans, there is often no self-convinced Excuse me, for these partisans, there is often no self-conceived, quote, politics, end quote, or at least no political strategy as such, only power and the tactics that build it. Counterinsurgency theorists like Kill Cullen see this in purely military terms, and the average leftist sees it in only the specter of fascism. There is truth to both of these dimensions, of course. Since such groupless can become, quote, a politically biddable, readily mobilized, self-organized, street-savvy, battle-hardened corpse day elite in urban conflict, end quote, as Kilcullen says of the football ultras, it is certainly not coincidental that they have played equal roles in both emancipatory insurrections, as in Egypt, and brutal sequences of violence, as in the Balkan Wars, as well as more politically ambiguous events that nonetheless have slanted toward the far right, as in Ukraine. But this doesn't make the phenomenon purely military or inherently fascist. In fact, this illusion is often the concrete cause of such rightward turns. In Hong Kong, leftists decried the actions of youth who smashed the windows of parliament, imagining that such violence was inherently opposed to the aims of the movement. Many of the youth who supported the action, therefore, began a slow turn towards the right, since right-wing localists were some of the only people who supported and defended these more violent advances. The less refusal to engage with these partisans is often the guarantee that turns the apolitical to the far right, since all varieties of nationalist, fascist, or simply authority-loving strongmen will have no qualms about organizing amid groups that have expressed minimal amounts of strength and discipline. The leftist, however, tends to quiver in the face of the juggalo Screaming, quote, F, the, the F word slur for gay or an individual being gay. I'm only, let me finish this sentence. Okay, let me read this sentence again. The leftist, however, tends to quiver in the face of the juggalo screaming F at the cops or at the black youth who brings a pistol to the memorial march. Okay. And I haven't really ran across too many times where I've been, where there's been a a homo, uh, homophobic slur written in these books. I think maybe once or twice in this podcast series that's happened. But I will always elect to not 
use the slur or the epithet for a group or a community that I am not a part of because I think that it can be, uh, it can catch people by off guard and it can be triggering and it can be traumatizing. I do think that it is important when reading, though, if you are to acknowledge the word or to, you know, read through the word. If I was reading by myself, I'm reading silently. Of course, I'm going to read through the word. I'm not going to pretend as if the word is not there. And I think it paint it's you should do that because it illustrates the gravity of the situation in which you're reading about. So if this was this times where I've read slurs that and epithets that are typically connected to black people or or used against black people. And I will continue to do that. But if it is a. If it's a community that I'm on the outside of, I will elect to not not use that that word. OK, we got about a page left. So let's read through this page and then reflect. The specter of fascism arises here because both the pre-political ultras and the resurgent right share the pragmatic focus on power and understand themselves as defined primarily by activity rather than analysis. They both perceive their field of operation as one of competitive control where political support follows strength, not vice versa. Neither have programs, but both adhere to the oath as an organizing principle. Leftists, and most specifically those whom the far right in Hong Kong quite appropriately took to calling, quote, leftist pricks, end quote, demand a program as necessary as a necessary preface to, quote, political, end quote, action, or simply presume that one will emerge naturally out of the activity of particular demographics. The absence of such a program is seen as an inherently fascistic elevation of might in the place of morality. It's true that the oath has no such program since it is an oath to shared action within the many political rifts that are just beginning to open. But, unlike the far right, what we might think of as the proto-communist oath is not unified by identity, but by a reflective fidelity to the unrest itself. It was the universal character of this oath that was able to bring juggalos together with indebted college graduates in Occupy, and to unite football hooligans with slum dwellers in Egypt. The, uni the unity of this oath is therefore the inclusive, flowing unity of those who wish to push the rift open, to spread it further, to extend it longer, or to ensure that the potential spreads. Instead of an oath of blood, it is therefore an oath of water, the, quote, party of anarchy, end quote, that seems to seek nothing but further erosion, the growth of the flood. The oath of blood is an oath of exclusive unity in which action is taken on behalf of a, quote, community, end quote, to be, to be defended or actualized. It is therefore easy for those beholden to this oath to sever themselves from the dynamics of the crowd and even to abhor mass unrest as such, seeing in it only the rise of an undifferentiated mob or rabble capable of nothing but degenerative chaos. The oath of blood reaches its apex, then, in militia or gang-like minority groupings of the type described by Kill Cullen. These groupings will seek to build local, communitarian spheres as part of a drive to, quote, start the world, end quote, in the midst of the material community of capital's widespread social decay. In contrast, the oath of water is an oath of inclusive unity in which action is inherently partisan action taken alongside and on behalf of the crowd dependent on constant expansion. When severed from the mass momentum of the historical party, 
Those beholden to this oath cannot properly act in its name. There is no true, quote, autonomy, end quote, from the material community of capital, only fidelity to its destruction. And then that brings us to a new section, in the an, another segment in the book, which is entitled Fuck Generations, as we are still in chapter four. Let's have a small reflection. So the author gives us his different definitions of the terms oaths of water and oaths of blood. We started out this book reading a chapter that was entitled oaths of blood. And that was that chapter was more geared towards informing us about some of the ideology, political tactics uh, and agenda of these far right conservative alt-right groups that were springing up and that existed in these West coast cities in these West coast cities and States and in these Northwest cities and States. And then he did a good job and in the Southwest cities and States. And the author did a good job of explaining to us some of the, the tactics that they implement, explaining to us some of their belief systems, explaining to us how they organize people and mobilize people. And now as we get to, as we get to this, as we're in this final chapter, it's entitled Oaths of Water. And this chapter has been a lot more informative about these far left groups and leftist groups and what some of their political agendas are, what some of their political tactics are, what the implementation of those tactics and agendas look like. And I think that one of the things that is very important when Read, when re taking in social commentary, when taking in political thought, ideological thought, is to be able to compare and contrast the belief systems and compare and contrast ideologies. And so I appreciate the book starting off in the far right and taking his time to bring us to the to the far left. And again, the author has done a good job of connecting things that issues that we have experienced nationally to issues that people in other countries have experienced nationally for them and painting a global picture of these struggles and how these struggles interact. And I think for me, one of the things that I'll, I'll, I'll take away from this book, this read, and this is definitely a book I need to read two and three times just to get a, a good feel for the author's cadence, a good feel for the author's vocabulary, a good feel for some of the terminology the author's using, but I will take away from it the the importance of political ideology, the importance of political activity, the importance of revolutionary activity and the importance of the important role that class plays in all of these struggles that we're that we're involved in these days. OK. Let's keep reading. Fuck generations. In Hong Kong, defeat came like the rain. First, the gangsters attacked in isolated downpours on behalf of the government, weakening morale in the already late stages of stagnating movement. Then torrents of police overtook the barricades at their weakest points, targeting the strongest occupation and mean cock after the others have fallen. fallen. In Seattle, defeat also came like the rain. After the camp moved from downtown to Capitol Hill, it was slowly ground down. Shuffling through the mud between rain-soaked tents, the moment at which it all collapsed could hardly be identified, but that defeat was clear. The homeless had slowly filled the camp as others left and the minimal services provided had begun to atrophy. 
Here the police never came in torrents. They just hovered around the camp in small groups, like a light, drizzling mist that slowly soaked through everything until no one was quite sure who was a plainclothes cop and who wasn't. The community college used the presence of the homeless as an excuse to finally evict the occupation, complaining of open-air drug use and harassment of female students. The police never even had to clear the camp. At the end of one of the longest-lasting occupations in the country, people ultimately just packed up and left. Whether the rain is torrential or perpetual, both occupations found themselves confronted with cities that were built as little more than slushies for water and capital. Sluices. Sluices? Let me find a definition in this word. Sluice. 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 Okay, so that word is sluices. And the definition for the word is a sliding gate or other device for controlling the flow of water, especially one in a lock gate, an act of rinsing or showering with water. And then verb, wash or rinse freely with a stream or shower of water. Okay. New words. Westlake, Moncock, Zuccotti Park. These are areas behind the palace walls, yet somehow below the conference rooms and executive suites that helm global circulation. And circulation is one key to this riddle. As Joshua Clover has argued, our era of riots is not unprecedented, but instead corresponds to long global economic cycles in which production and circulation alternate in their centrality. In eras when production dominates, the strike becomes the primary weapon of proletarians because the productive upswing tends to push more people into the industrial workforce, bringing them into direct contact with the immediate process of production and thereby making it possible to halt this process through a refusal to work. In periods such as our own, the immediate, excuse me, in periods such as our own, when circulation dominates and people are forced outside the immediate process of production, things like riots, occupations, and blockades rise to the forefront of global unrest, all defined by their attempt to attack the economy's circulatory system in the form of blockaded highways and ports, or attempts to occupy and thereby disrupt centers of commerce, such as Wall Street in New York or Central in Hong Kong. Clover also offers a social anatomy of recent unrest, which is marked by a, quote, double riot, end quote, in which the indebted, overeducated, graduate with no future finds, graduate, excuse me. Let me try that sentence again. Clover also offers a social anatomy of recent unrest, which is marked by a, quote, double riot, end quote, in which the indebted, overeducated graduate with no future finds herself unified with those more entirely excluded from the economy in the course of the long crisis. This is not some sort of overlap of simple sociological categories, however, since the two dimensions of the double riot are really just two faces of the same global surplus. Quote, the explosive growth of the indebted sector is another face of informalization in which finance capitals need to find debtors dovetails with the explosion of populations driven below substance wages. End quote. In many instances, the social base of recent conflagrations has quickly extended beyond just those two key demographics, as should be the goal of any truly expansive political event. But in almost all instances, one or both of these social strata seem to be the necessary kindling. In part, this is because both sides of the, quote, double riot, end quote, have a sort of bare exposure to circulation that other demographics do not. 
While the secular decline in the rate of economic growth has meant that surplus characteristics are more generally distributed across the population, they are not distributed equally. Many of those who are materially within the surplus population in some way, most often as completely superfluous service workers in some arcane insurance, healthcare, or education bureaucracy, nonetheless retain stronger forms of insulation from the immiserating effects of economic stagnation. This insulation takes the form of selective holdovers from the last economic boom, things like access to affordable health insurance, consistent credit, a viable mortgage, the ability to claim bankruptcy on one's debts, and Social Security eligibility and other retirement benefits. Taken together, these features ensure that some strata of the population retain strong access to the market despite both the relative superfluity of their employment and the insufficiency of their direct wage income. The Marxist economist Andrew Kleinman has even gone so far as to argue, somewhat controversially, that the total combination of non-wage benefits U.S. companies offer to workers, when calculated as part of their wage, completely eliminates the appearance of overall wage decline or stagnation for the American working class as a whole. Instead of across-the-board wage loss, there is a series of new polarizations within the class the most important of which is the split between those with salaries and benefits and those subsisting purely on wages. Rather than corporations gaining profits at the expenses of workers, then, Kleiman argues that, quote, although the typical worker's share failed, share failed to some degree, what actual... My fault, I'm butchering these, some of these sentences. These sentences is long as hell, though, I gotta say that. Rather than corporations gaining profits at the expense of workers, then... Kleiman argues that, quote, although the typical worker's share failed to some degree, what actually rose at his or her expense was the share of the income distributed to more highly paid employees, end quote. The racial dynamics of this divide have been widely demonstrated and are most salient in the disparity in subprime foreclosures after the burst of the housing bubble. But the particular ways that this polarization breaks down according to age are often less emphasized though arguably more important since they span racial groups, aggravate already existing racial inequalities, and perfectly match the J-curve model of rising expectations reaching a certain reversal, leading to widespread discontent. This generational dimension is also deceptively fundamental to understanding class and crisis for the simple fact that class does not return to the forefront of politics as soon as crisis breaks out. The return of class is instead part of the unfolding of the long crisis over time. As class conflict intensifies, the traditional methods of separation and sequestration of struggles, quote, as issues, end quote, concerning particular, quote, communities, end quote, or, quote, interest groups, end quote, will tend to strain and then shatter. This dispossession occurs across decades. The sphere of those who are insulated from the crisis shrinks, though white baby boomers, though white baby boomers remain at its core as the demographic who most benefited from the last golden age. In part, this shrinkage entails the pushing out of the less fortunate, never fully included blue-collar members of their coddled generation, a phenomenon already visible in mortality and morbidity rates among the poorest strata of older whites the political consequences of which were already examined in previous chapters. But it also occurs through the retirement and subsequent, well-deserved die-off of the elderly. 
It is this process that will ultimately guarantee a return to more distinct class lines in the future, sketched around new polarities of access to the historically. But as millions of Beatles loving, Trump and Hillary voting, home owning baby boomers die off, their particular anti-communist brain rot dies with them. The generational divide here really does drive down to the most basic level. Around the same time that the U.S. have finally imprisoned the same share of its population as the USSR under the height of the gulag system, I remember a baby boomer explaining to me that the most important difference between capitalism and, quote, communism, end quote, was that under capitalism, the government can't just spy on you, kick down your door, and search your property. A few years later, of course, the government was kicking down my door and searching my property, all because I was identified out of a picture book of, quote, known anarchist, end quote, based on intel gathered by thorough surveillance of my house, local protest, and online social networks. For these people, the urn cannot approach quickly enough. <laughs> That's funny. That is true for some people. That is true for some people. Okay, we're going to take a moment to reflect, and then we're going to wrap this episode up, and then we'll be back tomorrow. And let's see how many pages we got left. We got about 12 pages left, so I think we'll probably try to break it up into two episodes. So we probably got three episodes left of this book. And on reflection... I think what stands out to me the most is this, this the age, the issue of age that he pointed out here at that very end of, these, of this chapter, speaking about how there's a generation that, generation and generations that we will be, we will progress just through them no longer being part of the human race uh, or part of the uh, human race that's alive and breathing and contributing to uh, to thought and to culture and to society. And I do believe that sometimes is you can have an addition by subtraction. Sometimes less is more. And when you, and you are only as strong as your weakest link and the weakest links of our society right now are a lot are, is connected to a lot of people who lived at a time where information was not readily accessible who lived at a time where propaganda was seen as as just commonplace and was just accepted. And they have so many false notions and false beliefs and false understandings and the spreading of and spread so many false narratives that it is difficult for us to get to a better place with these people still putting their venomous ignorance into the collective consciousness. And a lot of times people talk about, you know, things will change with time and things get better with time. And that's not a true statement. You have to be actively putting in work for things to change and putting in work for things to progress and get better. But one thing that time can assist you with is that groups of certain generations will begin to die out. And if there is the right activity, involved, then you can take advantage of those generations and those people from those generations dying out. We have far too many people who will not be alive in the next 25 to 30 years making decisions about 
what life will be like for us in the next 25 to 30 years. And also, I think this this misunderstanding of communism and this misunderstanding of anarchism, and sometimes it's not even a misunderstanding, it's a purposeful misrepresentation of it. And that is just done to maintain the status quo. And I think that we, one of the main things that I, I peel away from this book, as I, one of the main things I peeled away from all the books that we've read here is that there has to be a change to the status quo because the status quo that currently exists in this country is one that has a disproportionate negative impact on black people, on poor people, on people of color, on people dealing with disabilities, whether they be mental or physical. And until we, until we collectively take, take upon us the challenge of pushing against this status quo and pushing against these norms, we will continue to be part of the long list of generations that have perpetuated these injustices. So, Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I will holler at you tomorrow.